0: Welcome to the Knowledge Nuggets podcast, hosted by John Ingram. Yeah, I think we can knock this out in 15 or 20 minutes, Joe. We still have 10 minutes for discussion, so perfect timing. Let's go ahead and go with the slides, guys. All right, so guys, this is episode number 8, May 5th, 2021. John Ingram, Knowledge Nuggets. I am your host. Of course, I have no disclosures on this or any other episode in the past or future. And our motto here at Knowledge Nuggets is "Spend a little time and expand your mind." Why do we say that? Because uh, this week's topic is going to be surfactant. And why do we say uh, uh, "spend a little time and expand your mind"? Because the uh, the format of the show, go right, ahead, guys, is um, is a different topic each week. But we want you to be able to take home a little nugget of knowledge that you can take home with you after this presentation and hopefully use it in the OR tomorrow at work. And when you see a little gold nugget in the upper right corner of the screen, that's a take-home slide that you can screenshot or snapshot, take it with you, and hopefully it'll be helpful to you if this topic ever comes up in a discussion or in your practice. So it's a highly impactful segment, about 12 to 15 minutes. Then we follow it with a surprise topic that's a two- or three-minute, very interesting uh, topic that I've discovered uh, to talk about called Gem of the Week. Then we're going to have panel discussion and questions. And also, guys, if you're watching it live or in the, if you watch this in the future, please email me questions, comments uh, to john.ingram at perkweb.us and I will respond to every person who sends me an email there. So, what is surfactant? Today's topic surfactant. So, surfactant, what is the definition? Well, actually, surfactant is a very general term. It's kind of like saying automobile. You get the idea, but it can be many different things. It's not just what we've been taught in school. Surfactant is a very general term. And a surfactant is a compound that reduces the surface tension or the interfacial tension, the interface between two liquids or between a gas and a liquid or even between a liquid and a solid. Surfactants may be detergents, Wetting agents, emulsifiers, foaming agents, or even dispersants. And Joe, you know this uh, Gulf uh, oil tragedy that we had some years back? You remember when they were putting dispersants into the ocean like crazy to disperse it? This was a surfactant that was used to do this. The word surfactant is a blend of three words put together. Surface, the word surface, the word active, and the word agent. So therefore, you come up with the word surfactant. Also now, they are compounds that are amphiphilic, meaning they contain a hydrophobic group on one end and a hydrophilic group on their other end. Therefore, a surfactant contains both a water-soluble component and a water-insoluble component. Surfactants will diffuse in water and absorb at interfaces between air and water or between, say, oil and water. In 2014, the world market for surfactants reached a volume of more than $33 billion 33 billion dollar industry, but market researchers expect annual revenues to be over $40 billion in the year 2021. Wow. The, most commercially, uh, the commercially most significant type of surfactant is currently the anionic surfactant LAS, or linear alkybenzene sulfonate, which is widely used in all of our cleaners and detergents. Cleaners and detergents, by the way, are surfactants. Now, the human body produces diverse surfactants. Pulmonary surfactant, the one we most commonly think of when we talk about a surfactant in the medical world, pulmonary surfactant is produced in the lungs in order to facilitate breathing by increasing total lung capacity and but does that by increasing our lung compliance. In respiratory distress syndrome, pharmaceutical surfactant replacement therapy helps patients have normal respiration. Bile salts a surfactant produced in the liver plays an important role in digestion. So now let's talk about pulmonary surfactant, something more relevant to to our particular field. Surface active lipoprotein is what it is, complex phospholipoprotein formed by type 2 alveolar cells. The proteins and lipids that make up the surfactant have, have both a hydrophilic and a hydrophobic regions, as I mentioned. By adsorbing to the air-water interface of the alveoli with with the hydrophilic head groups in the water and the hydrophobic tails of those facing towards the air, the surfactant thereby reduces the surface tension. So as a medication, pulmonary surfactant is on the, the, the WHO model list of essential medicines. The most important medications that are needed in a basic health system is when it's on the the list of essential medicines. So what is its function? To increase pulmonary compliance and to prevent atelectasis, i.e. the collapse of the lung, at the end of expiration, so to facilitate recruitment of collapsed airways. We're gonna talk about how it does this. Lung compliance. Lung compliance is defined as the volume change per unit of pressure change across the lung. Measurements of lung volume obtained during the controlled inflation and deflation of a normal lung show that the volumes obtained during deflation exceed those during inflation at a given pressure. The difference in inflation and deflation volumes at a given pressure is called hysteresis and is due to the air water surface tension that occurs at the beginning of inflation. However, surfactant decreases the alveolar surface tension as in cases of premature infants suffering from infant respiratory distress, distress syndrome. So now the normal surface tension for water is 70 dimes per centimeter, but in the lungs, it needs to be as low as 25 dimes per centimeter. And this is why one reason why we need this surfactant to lower that um, surface tension. At the end of expiration, Compressed surfactant molecules decrease the surface tension near zero. In other words, as the alveoli gets smaller during expiration, your surface surfactant all comes closer and closer together. So it's more densely coating the inside of the alveoli as the alveoli uh, condenses down. Therefore, the surface tension uh, is much more less, and it makes it easier to reinflate that alveoli. So pulmonary surfactant thus. Greatly reduces the surface tension, increasing compliance. As I said, allowing the lung to, lung to inflate much more easily, and therefore reduces the workload. By the way, of your efforts of breathing, it reduces the pressure difference needed to allow the lung to inflate. The lungs' compliance decreases and ventilation decreases when lung tissue becomes diseased and fibrotic. So this is one thing that happens to the lungs. And, and this is where surfactant can really help us out as well when we have uh, disease states of the lung. So what I was saying before, alveolar size regulation, uh, surfactant plays a huge role here. As the alveoli increase in size, the surfactant becomes more spread out over the surface of the alveolus. This increases the surface tension, effectively slowing the rate of expansion of the alveoli. So here it's beneficial because as the alveoli gets inflated, the surfactant gets thinned out, and therefore becomes a uh, uh, protecting against the alveoli, you know, becoming overdistended. So it's a perfect, you know, yin and yang, and in inflation and deflation. As the surfactant is beneficial when it's collapsed and and lessened, and more beneficial now, not doing its job as well as it expands. So this also helps the alveoli in the lungs expand at the same rate. In other words, if one alveoli expands more quickly it will experience a larger rise in surface tension, slowing its rate of expansion, therefore sort of displacing some of the, the flow airflow to go to the, the lower or slower expanding alveoli. It's amazing how regulatory this, this acts. So it also means the rate of shrinking is more regular, shrinking of the alveoli. As one alveoli reduces in size more quickly, the surface tension will reduce more so other alveoli can contract more easily than it can. Surfactant reduces surface tension more readily when the alveoli are smaller because the surfactant is more concentrated, as I might have mentioned. So surfactant also plays a role in prevention of fluid accumulation, and it helps maintain alveolar dryness so our lungs don't get as wet, right, the alveolus. Surface tension draws fluid the surface tension itself, the effect of surface tension, draws fluid from the capillaries to the alveolar spaces naturally. Surfactant reduces this fluid accumulation because it reduces the surface tension and thereby helps keep our alveoli dry And because of the reduced surface tension, as I said. So another great benefit of surfactants. So what are some of the animal-derived surfactants? There's a number of them. I put a few of them here. Alveol. Alveofact extracted from the cow lung, surfactant extracted from minced cow lung. You can extract it from cow lung lavage, as in al- al- alveo al- alveofact, or you can mince up the lung, sort of grind it up, and extract the surfactant from mincing up the lung tissue. You have beractin, which is extracted extracted from minced calf lung. You have calfactant extracted from calf lung lavage. You also have poractin alpha. Which is extracted from minced pig lung. So, synthetic surfactants have been developed. Here's our, a list of some of those exosurf, pumactin, venticute, and lucinactin. This may not be a comprehensive list. So, just a little history on this though. In the late 1920s, von Meergaard identified the function of the, of the pulmonary surfactant. And that he realized and discovered that it increases the compliance of the lungs by reducing surface tension. So he's the one credited for identifying it. But he also realized the importance of having low surface tension in the lungs of newborn infants. In the 1990s, it was discovered that the lack of this surfactant was was the primary cause of infant respiratory distress syndrome in our our premature uh, newborns. So now the gem of the week for, as you guys know, uh, the gem of the week can be anything. It could be a trivia question that I find somewhere. It's gonna be a surprise. It could be um, how to interview in a virtual interview situation, tips for a successful interview. Could be a great career opportunity that's out there. Here in Houston, you, you need to, to change consider. that picture that, to Houston, John. It's not, John. It's not a, <laughs> a permanent <laughs> And then you could say something about a perfusion recall. Uh, perfusion Week is coming up. I think it's this week, Joe. Uh, perfusion Week. We may find something next next talk that's interesting on Perfusion Week. And as you know, one week I did a famous quote, and we talked about the implications of some uh, very famous, intelligent quotes. Or we could be talking about a fantastic perfusion meeting coming up, such as the New Orleans conference that Joe throws every year. So, what is the gem of the week? This episode is the case of the elevator door and the ECMO oxygenator. Oh, good Lord. The case of the elevator door meets the ECMO auctionator in a patient safety network website published April 2020, complications of ECMO during transport. This was a editorial written by Dr. Michael Broman, MD, PhD. He's an intensivist and a st- anesthesiologist physician in the ECMO center of Karolinska in Stockholm, Sweden. Sweden. He also considers himself a, a specialist in ECMO. He also is in the Department of Pediatric Perioperative Medicine and intensive care. He's the one who writes this patient safety network uh, editorial that I found this on. <clears throat> so it's a 54-year-old woman with end-stage COPD was admitted for acute chronic respiratory fa- failure. She was placed on the list for a lung transplant. So her, her hypoxemia got worse. And she was intubated. Oh, excuse me. <clears throat> she was intubated, <clears throat> mechanically ventilated, and then put on ECMO support. Six days later, the patient developed clotting complications of the ECMO oxygenator. So, therefore, she was returned to the operating room, underwent an uneventful change of the ECMO circuit. On the way back to the ICU, the team, which did not include a perfusionist or ECMO specialist, was moving the patient out of the elevator, out of an elevator, when part of the ECMO oxygenator became snagged on the elevator door. The ECMO circuit alarm, but the patient, they determined, was remaining stable. Therefore, the team uh, silenced the circuit alarms, was not sure really what the problem was or what to do, but silenced the alarms, global override, no doubt, on the ECMO circuit, and the decision was made to continue the ICU and recheck the system once it was back in the ICU. And the policy at this hospital was once they returned to the ICU, um, they would call the perfusionist to come then check that everything was reestablished in the ICU. However, the nurse observed when in the ICU upon returning that there was clots present in the new oxygenator. So a perfusionist was called, and usually, he's a quote from the article here, this whole slide, usually a perfusionist is expected to be at bedside to monitor all aspects of the ECMO system as soon as a patient has reached the ICU. However, in this case, the perfusionist was covering multiple floors, therefore took the perfusionist approximately 25 minutes to come see the patient since the patient left the operating room. The perfusionist immediately realized that the oxygenator was filled with room air. The air had been transmitted to the patient's circulation resulting in an air embolism because when they overrid the alarms, they did not reduce the RPM, so it continued to pump. A cold blue was called, attempts at resuscitation were not successful, The patient's family decided to stop resuscitation after a period of time, and the patient died. So, the oxygenator was sent to the company for further investigation and was found to have a small breach in the oxygenator, which I'm not sure what that means, but I'm going to discuss it, which was believed to be caused by the mishap in the elevator, which is also a little unclear as to what this mishap was, but I'm going to expand on that in a second. So, we're going to discuss this, Joe. I have my thoughts about this. And again, you guys listening, please email me, john.ingham at perfweb.us. And if you have questions, comments, suggestions for a future topic, I will definitely take that in consideration. I will respond to you. So, Joe, let me uh, start the discussion off, if Mm -hmm. I could, about what happened here. It's not clear at all what happened, but I've given this some thought. What happened here, how does an oxygenator fill with air and not yet... Nothing got disconnected. The line didn't get pulled off. So what you had... That wouldn't have been filled with air. That
1: would have been been a bloodbath. Bloodbath.
0: Right. So what happened was air somehow completely filled the system to the point where it was even pumped into the patient. What happened, Joe, because I do an awful lot of transports, the bed made its way into the elevator, and there was two or three or so feet of tubing between the end of the bed and the ECMO console. And the elevator door no longer saw an obstruction because the bed was in. The ECMO console was not, and it begins to close. The elevator door starts to close and stretches the venous tubing, particularly the venous tubing, gets suddenly stretched before the nursing team and whoever could suddenly grab the door and get it to retract back. It was the instant that that happened that the ECMO alarmed. So what happened was the, the venous line got severely stretched, and if you have a venous inflow to your pump and a tubing around it, and that tubing becomes stretched, there was enough instant of time for air to be sucked in between the connector and the tubing, without separating it from the connector entirely. So the alarms go completely off because you have venous air bubble detector, flow going to zero, but there's no ECMO specialist or anybody ECMO trained to understand what has happened. So they did a global override to stop the alarming. The patient was holding their own because it was probably VV ECMO because the patient was a lung transplant candidate, right? So the patient was able to hold her own for a little bit. So they managed to get it up to the ICU, and now they call the perfusionist to say, hey look, if does, something doesn't look right, come up and check this out, which was their routine. And so it took the perfusion a little while, it got held up. Again, we probably have a perfusion shortage. Who knows the reason? People doing a lot of different things. When he goes up there, he or she, the whole system's full of air. And by the way, the RPMs are still spinning, so it has propelled this air into the patient, okay? So the patient died because nobody with perfusion expertise goes on their transports and the elevator door stretched the venous line to the point where it separated slightly from the connector. This is what I believe happened because if you read it, they say the elevator door got snagged on part of the ECMO equipment. I'm not sure what that means. It can only mean what I'm saying, in my opinion, to cause venous air to fill the system, right? That, it didn't that's breach possible. It, it that didn't is, breach it on the positive side, right? If it, it yes, breached it on yeah. the positive side. So then when they sent the oxygenator back to the manufacturer, there may have even been generated a slight crack, because they said they found a breach in the oxygenator. That now, how does a breach in the oxygenator cause air to fill the system only at that connector that may have also bumped the elevator door? I don't know, maybe generated a tiny crack. Uh, they don't they won't they don't specify what happened here. Well, I the
1: oxygenator the- is that doesn't make any sense because the oxygenator on both sides of the oxygenator are going to be under tremendous positive pressure.
0: Yeah, so uh, yes, there is yes, right, yeah. no way it.
1: unless it was a uh, now it could have been a uh, a quadrox right that oh. has the integrated the uh, the cardio help. That yeah, probably right.
0: I believe I believe that's what probably happened here because
1: they don't specify
0: anything about the device. But...
1: Right, that's likely what it was. I'm looking for a picture because I had a similar circumstance actually occur, not with the devastation, uh, devastating outcome. And I'm looking for a picture. And if I could, there it is. I found it. <clears throat> okay, I can't believe I found this. Okay. Well.
0: Hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, so this is so complementary to what you were just saying about taking a, a perfusionist sitting behind the pump on bypass where they're the only person interacting with this to going to an ECMO situation where now you have a whole slew of interactions that are going to happen with the de- this device. This is a perfect example of, of where now you have an elevator door and, and people and transport mm-hmm. of things that can go wrong that nobody's probably even thought about what can go wrong here. Mm-hmm. You know, the elevator door decides to close, it moves at a pretty good clip, and by the time somebody can grab it, put their arm there and get it to go back, it's it you know, it's it's like a lumbering elephant. It's not the the quickest thing to change its mind in the world, especially when it's stretching a tubing. And uh, I think agreed. that's what happens. Agreed. So let me let
1: me show you this picture. So before before you put the picture up. Oh, that's all right, that's fine. Put it up. That's okay. So we were taking a patient to C T. This was down in the uh, in the med center, and uh, there was the elevator was too small, struggling to get everything in, mm-hmm. and I saw it just at the last moment, mm-hmm. and started yelling. This is one of the reasons why I don't like manifolds, and if you look at that, the flow from this manifold is going from right to left. So if you if you look at that furthest left one that's turned right there, it's actually flowing in that direction. So it's, it's now turned at a 45, but it's going to that way. Mm-hmm. Anything past that point is negative pressure. Mm-hmm. So let me see. I think I can use the... No, I can't use a highlighter. Maybe my mouse will work. Yeah. So this... Can you see my mouse? I don't think you can, can you? Uh,
0: uh, Yeah. Okay.
1: I can see it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. So, But you're doing it. No, no. I'm not doing anything. No. David's doing it. No. So keep going left. Right there. So everything past that point to the left is negative pressure. And on the other side is positive pressure. And that thing was bending. And if that thing would have come off, And it was so close. Just look at it. I have a clamp on it, but you can't see the clamp. It's down further below. You Mm -hmm. can't see the clamp. It would have done two things. Mm -hmm. It would have sucked air and deprimed that pump so incredibly fast. Right. And two, it would have been shooting blood out of that port all the way across the elevator. And you're going to see the blood, and you're probably going to react to it first. And then you're going to have the thing depriming, priming and you're going to have to figure that out in an elevator that it's already so incredibly tight, you can't even really move. Yeah. And so here is another example of what you're talking about, how it could have potentially happened, but they might have, it, I don't know what happened. If something happened on the negative side even though yeah. the cardio help i have a hard time believing it was the oxygenator that cracked um, yeah. but you know i don't know i mean, it's a really good question it, but it's it's incredibly frightening at and this is why i was saying about venting the oxygenator you're bringing it right full circle again is that with ecmos you have people going around touching stuff they should not be touching and look i i you know we we can this is a separate topic but you know Do we use, there's not enough of us. We can't, you could never have enough perfusionists. just in your institution, you would consume probably 2% of the entire perfusion pool that exists in the entire country, maybe 5%. I really don't know, but I mean, it's a lot. You have so many ECMOs. There simply are not enough of us. And so I think that having well-trained People, but the problem with even well-trained people is if you're not really afraid, if you have never experienced, and look how close I was to experience something. I've experienced other things similar to what you're discussing, which is really, uh, it, it definitely changes you dramatically. And well, the ICU, ECMOs, transporting them, whatever it is, you can't take this in account cavalier fashion. This is not something you just do without expert assistance. And it's why we're so neurotic when it comes to the circuit, is because we know what can happen. And I was just seconds away,
0: if that long, from what would have been a total disaster. Yeah, uh, Joe, that's a great picture of what I was trying to describe with my hands here. You see that the line is getting stretched and then it's getting angled, right? It's yeah. In, in that it, case, pull it you back would have right a double disaster because you would have a positive exsanguination and you would add a negative fill of yes. the oxygen. So you were, this is this is death to the patient right here. Yes. Uh, this is death to the patient. There's nothing you can do here. And you're in an elevator, make it even 10 times worse. But it doesn't matter if it happened anywhere, it happened. You, this is probably instant death, depending on how how dependent. This patient was on the ECMO, and let's face it, most patients are really dependent on the ECMO, right? This not, patient not, not was dependent. this
1: patient was one hundred percent dependent but, on ECMO.
0: Joe, uh, do you know of a case many, many years ago? I won't say the city. Uh, well, it was in Atlanta, and it made all the news. But I want to take thirty or forty years ago of of an incident where the positive line got hit by the elevator door on the ECMO, and it came off inside the elevator. And I, I when don't. it opened up and when it opened up on the next floor that it was going to the patient's family was standing there oh, while the- yep. oh
1: my god that's a real case from many years ago okay i need you to pre- i need you to present that case in like a 15 minute you know uh the 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 terrible things that can happen that we know of <laughs> because i think these are i mean i think these are these are very Im- instructive stories you know i mean they're horrifying you know, and we have to. We have to. Our emotional status is so twisted because we 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 can chuckle about something like that because we have to. Um, it, we well, would be course. emotional wrecks if we yeah. didn't if we didn't have this this incredibly uh, 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 strong shell around ourselves. So you know, I think that would be an excellent session. Is to do several different uh uh disasters of perfusion, I think it'd be really interesting.
0: Joe, how yeah. many how many ECMO transports a day do you think that go on there in the in the medical center? ECMO transports going you know to CT or what have you do you think occur there?
1: In the entire day. medical center and in, in one institution?
0: Yeah oh, whatever. Somewhere there in, in in yeah. Whatever you think. Well, uh, in a, the tech, in, in
1: the entire medical center I would probably say yeah,
0: Two to four a day. Yeah, we do two to four a day at our hospital. We have, you know, 18 ECMOs going. In fact, yesterday we had five, just to tell you. We had five transports. And, you know, this becomes so routine, and let's go, let's get back, let's do the CT. And, you know, I was preparing for this lecture here the last week, and I really gave pause. Yesterday I had to do four transports myself, and there was a couple others that did some, uh, you know, other profusions. And uh, I thought to myself, you know, this in and out of the elevator, and and down many hallways, like you brought up before, in and off the CT table, back on, back out. You know, man, oh man, we begin to come very routine with this, and very go go go. We got to do the next one, and there is so much that does and can go wrong. Um, how you're sitting on a. Absolutely,
1: you're sitting, you're sitting on, a, on you're a sitting bomb. on you're sitting on a crate of dynamite. Yeah, that's what we do every day. So, magic had a question. Go ahead. no i was yelling i took the picture once we had everything actually that picture is not from within the elevator so i had that stopcock turned and then i had the other line clamped. Uh, i took that in the icu because i was like i need to preserve this uh later on i had to, of course I had to change it but uh but that's one of the reasons why i don't like uh manifolds is things like that can happen
0: and that was the elevator
1: door, Joe, that hit that? Was that the elevator door? No, actually, it wasn't the elevator door. It was inside the elevator, and they, oh. the uh, people were trying to get the vent positioned, and they were moving the bed, and it got that line got caught on the edge of the bed, and it was bending and pulling it, and I was screaming at that point in time. But I saw it just at the last second. I, I mean, it, look, I was just very lucky uh, because that would have been, as you said, catastrophic. Listen, John. I'm going to ask you a favor if you don't mind. Would you please close the show out for me? I am going to run. Um, I want to bid everybody adieu. I want to thank you again. But if you could close the show out, maybe talk about the next program that we're going to do and uh, and say goodbye to everybody, I would appreciate you so much. Yeah. Um, do, those, do your guys have the uh, graphic for the next show? I'm sure uh, they do. Uh, uh, David can help you. So I'm going to bid everyone okay. adieu. I've got to run. But John if you can close this out thank you so much so the tammy Sparacino Journal Club was guest hosted by me and now the program is going to be guest hosted by
0: you I'll talk right, to you later okay. bye we'll see if we can all right, joke take care we'll just kind of see if we have any uh chat chat questions or phone calls and magic can read them out and I don't know david if you have the the graphic for uh the next uh the next topics or not because uh, off the top of my head I, I don't know what Tammy's doing and uh, I'd have to look at my list to see what what I'm doing next. But um basically, guys, you know, we uh, appreciate your comments. Uh you can always email me directly at John.ingram at if you want to have a an email uh chat back and forth. Uh we certainly take suggestions for future shows. I really appreciate that. Um you know coming up with topics all the time sometimes isn't so um so easy. And uh so we're looking at May 20th will be our next one. And that's going to be, uh, looks like that's probably a Thursday. Yep. And it's going to be the afternoon. So what we do, just so our listening audience understands, one, one week we do a Wednesday morning. And then the next uh, episode is a Thursday afternoon evening. So it mixes up the day and the times so that people, both nationally and internationally, can have an opportunity to catch the show live at different times. So we don't always come at the exact same time so it accommodates different people, uh, hopefully. But you can always watch these uh, back in time because on all four uh, social medias, they're saved. and You can go back and watch any of the topics that we've done back now for over three years, I guess. We've been doing topics. And there's a whole library list that you can choose from, a specific topic if you're interested in ultrafiltration or AKI, what have you, click on that. And how many ever ever episodes we've done uh, or somebody has done will come up and you can watch uh, any number of those on a particular topic, Uh, cardioplegia, you name it. We've covered an awful lot of topics now. And um, is there any uh, chat questions or anything, uh, Magic, you want to run by me, or are we pretty much um, able to wrap up? I don't have any audio for you guys. I'm checking with Magic now. Please check Okay, just checking. Okay, uh, it's a little hard to hear, but go ahead. I can probably, can probably hear you. I don't. I don't get the chat. I don't get the chat window on my end when we're when we're live. So I, I don't see the. Uh, can't see the questions exactly. Yeah. No, um. Yep. Magic says no. Uh, no questions. All right. So all right. Great. So let's just uh, wrap it up. We appreciate everybody listening. Look forward to seeing you guys uh, next Thursday, uh, uh, May twentieth. And uh, hopefully we'll um, we'll be able to uh, pick it up then. And uh, and hopefully we, you guys have enjoyed this. We appreciate you listening and calling in and emailing and chatting. I know Joe does and Tammy does. And we look forward to seeing Tammy next week. She was a little bit uh, had a, had an engagement. She had to go to uh, today. So thank Joe for filling in on that. And uh, we look forward to seeing you all next time. Thank you very much for listening.